Let me read this to you and then we'll pray. Isaiah 53, 7. He was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would see his offspring. He, would, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Pray with me for a moment. Oh, Father, we pray, we stop and pray. May the words of your servant's mouth be pleasing in your sight. May the meditations of all our hearts please you as well as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last uh, yesterday we started off looking at extremities, and um, just to show you, here we are going to look at extremities. We're going to look at execution and resurrection. How much uh, different can you get? And yesterday, just to show you how God has a sense of humor, uh, as we were uh, at the cemetery, we had the family down uh, putting their hands on the coffin and saying their goodbyes, and there were tears. (laughs) Then uh, I could tell that Linda wanted some flowers. And so she got her daughters to try to cut some flowers off the flowers that were sitting on the coffin. And they were having a really hard time cutting those flowers off that, off those, that, that arrangement. And they all started, bur- they all burst out laughing. So, so we had sorrows and we had joy at the same time. We're sitting here laughing and enjoying. And the whole time it was like lava out there. It was so hot. And every now and then the Lord would bring a wonderful breeze to kind of cool us down. But we do look at so many extremities. And last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is risen. Thank you very much. He is risen from the dead. And we talked about first before the day he rose from the dead. We talked about Friday. And Friday is the day of execution. Friday is the hour of darkness. In fact, Jesus, after he was arrested, he said, This hour... And this is the power of darkness. This is your hour. This is your power. This is your time. And so on that Friday, it ended with the execution of God's servant. On that, at those those three hours, those last three hours that Jesus was on the cross, the sun was totally eclipsed, was blotted out. It was the day, the moments of darkness as Jesus gave up his spirit. We said the servant, we looked at the servant in verse 13 or 12 last week in chapter 52. We said, he says, Behold, 
my servant. We said that servant is Jesus. And Jesus, we are seeing here, the prophet, is eight centuries earlier. He's seeing the cross as if he's right there, present when it's going on. In fact, he's painting himself into the picture, if you will. We see the execution of Jesus Christ in the 8th century B.C. And that's the first point, the execution of God's servant. First thing I want you to take note of is God's servant was wronged. He was wronged. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted. Have we heard that word a lot lately? Oppressed. (laughs) Oppressed. We hear oppression all the time. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. What happened to God's servant was a radical misuse of power. They used the justice system to bring about the outcome they wanted. Have we not heard that? That's, today we can use what's going on today to preach this text. They're using not facts, but they're using the things they want to bring out and make the story out that Jesus is a bad person. Jesus is a wicked person. He's breaking all the rules of the day. And we must not only persecute him, but we must put him to death. So they disregard all normal order of things. They accuse him, they condemn him, and they use Rome to execute him. Nothing is new under the sun. We see the same thing going on, don't we? And this is not the point of the sermon, but just to pass by and say, look, we see what is going on around us today. The wicked are using the justice system to redefine things to destroy marriage, to destroy the family, to kill the innocent in the womb, turning a blind eye to, I'm not even going to mention all the other ones, I'm just thinking about three nine-year-olds that were killed by somebody and people siding with the one who did the shooting. People are using the system to accomplish their story. Nothing new under the sun. God's servant here is wronged. He was wronged. Second, God's servant voluntarily accepted being wronged. In verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. There's a contrast going on here between an actual lamb that that makes a noise and a human lamb. Jesus comes down from the the time of, of the wilderness, temptation, and John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this this prophet is telling us lambs back in those days, what do they do when they're about to be sheared? They're silent. They don't know what's going on. When lambs are being led away to slaughter, they're ignorant. They don't know what's going on. But this Lamb of God, this is a human being. He doesn't go silently and ignorantly to the cross. He understands what's going on. He has all his wits about him. Not like an actual lamb. He's voluntarily accepting the execution. The wrong being done to him. Every single one of our transgressions is an act of our human will. We are bent. We said last week, we are bent. We come into this world in Adam and we are bent. We don't like to hear that, but we are. But we need a second Adam to come to the rescue. And in this second Adam, what kind of will do we need in the second Adam? We need a will in the second Adam that's not bent. We need a a will that willingly goes and accepts the wrong being done to him. Jesus, at any point in time, with all the power at his his disposal, with all the wisdom in his mind, 
He could have changed it all in a moment. I've heard a sermon. I, I still remember this. I, I remember before I became an old person. Before I became, let me tell you how you know when you're getting old. When you can't sleep past 545. So I was still, well, I would go out and I would walk in California. And I'd walk at about 1030 and I'm listening to sermons. And I heard this guy say this and it just stuck with me because it's a track illustration, Steve. And so he said this, he said, Jesus is standing before Pilate and he has all the wisdom in the world at his disposal. And he's standing before Pilate. He said, I believe Pilate is waiting on Jesus to say just the right words and he can walk, he'll let him walk away. But he doesn't. He said, and this, and this is what the minister said. He said, sort of like a four by four by 100 meter relay. Jesus doesn't say anything and the baton goes 100 meters down the, down the track a little further down, getting closer to the time of the cross. He keeps his mouth closed. Why? Why does he do this? For the transgression of my people. For those to whom the stroke is due. That's why he did this. He says in John 10, 18, I lay my life down on my own initiative. He was wrong and he accepted it willingly. Third, God's servant was cut off. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The third part of that verse there, he was cut off. One of the things that it really gets me is he was cut off out of. Cut off out of. He was wronged. He voluntarily accepted it for the transgressions of his people. And he was taken away. Verse 8 says this. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Now, that can be translated in two ways. It can be translated just as, as I read it, or it can be translated more in a more short fashion. It can be translated like this. And who can speak of his descendants? Now, if you, talk, if you use that translation, and who can speak of his descendants, that's a little less intense. Back in those days, back in Jewish days, it was a grief not, to, and it still is today, it's a grief not to have a child. It's a grief not to have a family. And so here's a young, a young man, Jesus 30, 33 years old. Here's a young man cut off before his time, cut off before he can get married, cut off before he has a family. That's a grievous thing. But if we take the longer translation, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? It's a little more intense translation. It means this. Who cares about you? Who, who's protested when you had done so? Think about Jesus. All the good he had done. All the kind words he had spoken. All the mercy he had shared. All the, all the kindness. Raising people up from the dead. Giving people sight to the blind cleansing lepers and all the rest, and nobody could speak up for him when he comes to die? <laughs> nobody? Really? This was, he was cut off and he had done so many kind and tender things. The fourth thing we see here is that God's servant was buried. His grave was assigned, verse 9, with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Think about this. He's cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus is on a cross. There's two criminals beside, beside him on either side. And the normal routine was not to be buried. The normal routine was to take men down who were criminals and throw them in the city dump. That's the normal thing. 
with all the animals. Think about all the animals. Lots of sacrifices. Lots of animals out there. Lots of worms gnawing away on the bones. Lots of fires. And criminals thrown in with all the rest of the animals and the refuse. That's the normal routine for criminals. Jesus was assigned to be thrown in the city dump. And yet 800 years before this happens, we have a man saying he will actually be with a rich man in his death. And Matthew tells us he was. Matthew tells us that Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man and he had a tomb and he went and got permission to take Jesus off the cross and guess who was there with him? Another well, pretty wealthy man named Nicodemus. And so both of these men cradled Jesus' body off the cross. They take him to Joseph's new tomb and they put him in there with 100 pounds of spices. Why was he buried like a king? I thought this person was supposed to be thrown into the city dump. Why? Well, here's why. He didn't do anything wrong. The text says he had done no violence. When we think about violence, we think about somebody who did something with their hands. We think about somebody taking a rock and breaking a window or sticking their hand in somebody's car and getting money out of the, you know, the, the glove box or something. But he did nothing wrong. And one of the reasons we know he did nothing wrong is because he didn't have a heart to do anything wrong. He had a perfect heart. I think about my heart. I think about a sick heart. I think about a Jeremiah 17, 9 heart. I think about a heart that's sick. I think about you know, what the Bible says that, our, that we hunger and we thirst. We go all the wrong directions, constantly wanting sin. And here's a person who had no thought of sin. No words that were sinful. No violence, no, no hands to do anything wrong. We have to have this kind of person go to the cross for us because we have bent hearts. If you go and see what Jesus says about our hearts, our hearts are full of what? It's a cesspool. We need somebody to go to the cross for us who has a heart that's pure, full of rivers of living water. He has a king's burial because he did nothing wrong. And this king's burial is a foreshadowing of something better to come. And that thing that's better to come is a resurrection. God's servant was raised. Now, you know what? You can go read this passage of Scripture and you won't find any place in it where it talks about the resurrection, the word resurrection. <laughs> you, know, you know, there's another word in the Bible. There's several words we use that, that are not in the Bible, like Trinity. But it helps us understand the, the one God in three persons. Well, resurrection is not in this text, but let me see if we can find it. Let's see if we can find resurrection as we read through the text. Verse 10, he is seeing his offspring and he is prolonging his days. Now, how can a dead person see his offspring and how can he prolong his days unless he be alive, right? Unless he is resurrected from the dead. Here's another one, verse 11. He is the righteous one who will justify the many. How can a dead person justify anybody? How can a dead person declare anybody not guilty? It doesn't happen unless he's raised from the dead. Verse 12, he is victorious. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. This is talking about somebody who's just won a battle. Really? He's on the cross. He just won a battle. Yes, he's raised from the dead. And he walks around and he's going to divide the booty. Now, if you remember, and we've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things to talk about is when a military uh, 
general or a leader goes out to battle and he goes out and he wins the battle. He comes back and he, he, he's paraded down the streets and all the way to, to Caesar, to Caesar himself. And if you go watch, now I'm going to advocate that you go watch Charlton Heston and Judah Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston saves a general on a ship. And then they find out when they get picked up by a, a, a big Roman ship passing by, they find out that they won this big battle. And they take old Quintus Arius back. And Quintus Arius is paraded down this, be- I mean, it's a wonderful scene because they made all these scenes probably you know, really real looking and all. He's all the way, goes all the way back to Caesar himself. And then they divide the booty. They divide the, all the spoils of war. And Jesus He's a victor. He's a victor on the cross. He's raised from the dead. Everything looks so bad in his execution. He comes from heaven to earth. He looks so weak. Just think about the story. We talk about Jonah. Jonah's going down in that fish. He's going down in the fish for whose sin? His own sin. God appointed the fish for him to be swallowed and take him down for his sin. But Jesus is going down for our sin. Down he goes, down in this tomb. He's hidden out of sight, and then he's raised from the dead. And he has all of us who are in his heart chained to his cross. All of us are with him, all of us captive to sin. He has taken us in his heart. We're chained to his cross so that we might be saved from our sin. Here's a helpless-looking lamb reigning supreme. We are told that he is going to see his offspring. In the resurrection, he sees the people who are chained to his cross. He sees them. He saves them. To die childless, as we said just a few minutes ago, for a Jew would be a great grief. Jesus had no wife. Jesus had no physical family members, children of his own. But when he goes through the pains of the cross, it's like a woman giving birth. And when he rises from the dead, he sees all his spiritual children another thing we see here is that god's servant was so pleasing he was so wronged and yet he was so pleasing we see this several times but the lord was pleased verse 10 to crush him putting him to grief we see it again and the good pleasure of the lord prospered in his hand so wronged and yet so pleasing we need to be thinking like this. There's two plots going on here at all, at all times. On the one hand, in the human court, the plot of sinful men was to perpetrate and to arrest under false pretenses Jesus Christ and put him to death, condemn him to death. And on the other hand, we have God in his divine court pleased to punish his own son for whose sin? Now, there are people today, and I promise you, you do this one time and you won't ever do it again. If you go watch anybody talk about God the Father being an abusive father, you'll, watch, you'll do it once and you'll never do it again. It's amazing to listen to, the, to men who call themselves ministers talk about God the Father being an abusive father. Because that's not what he was glad. He was not pleased with, what, with, uh, with that. He was not being abusive. What the father was pleased with was with his son's obedience. I don't know, guys. Daddies? We, we want to do a little poll here. Um, your kid obeys. Are you happy? Are you glad? Oh, man, listen. 
It's, it's wonderful. If God had a body like men and He had hair and the wind was blowing through His hair, that's what it's like to have a son who's obeying you. You with me? Yesterday at that funeral, that wind was blowing through my hair and I was complete. I'm, I'm wondering if my suit's got uh, salt all over it. It was so wet, right? But it's pleasant when the wind blowing through my hair. It's pleasant to the father when the wind's blowing through his hair. Watching this person, his son, put on the human flesh and do, he says in Psalm 40, I, Behold, you have a body prepared for me, and I have come to do your will. And he did it. There's some food. Jesus says, I have some food you don't even know about, guys. And it's called obedience. And he did it. And his father loved it. It was like wind blowing through his father's hair. So in regard to the human court, they bear their own responsibility for their sins against the servant, and God in His court is sovereignly working through their sins to accomplish salvation for you and for me. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23 that God delivered over this man, Jesus, by His own predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And in the same verse, he says, You, Jews, nailed this man, Jesus, to the cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans. Who's doing this? <laughs> it's going on at the same time. Who's doing this? The Jews are guilty and so are the Romans. And God is working out salvation for His people. God is doing this. The wicked men are responsible for what they do and God is determined through their wickedness to save sinners. I want you to think about Joseph. Like Jesus, Joseph is rejected by his brothers, and like Jesus, he's roughly treated by Gentiles. Think about Potiphar. Potiphar's a Gentile, roughly treating Joseph. He's roughly treated in the prison, and then he rises up in the prison. And then God raises him up to be the second in control of all of Egypt. His brothers come to him. Listen, this is something really important. His brothers come to him, and he could have crushed them. Joseph could have crushed his brothers. He said, you did what you did and you meant it for evil. But God is working through your sins, bringing me all the way to this place, not just to give you something to eat and not just to give you a place to live, but for me first and foremost to forgive you of your sins. That's what he was there for. The church is going apart at this time. And he forgives them and brings them all back together. This is exactly what we see in the cross. Make no mistake, God is sovereign and man is responsible. Every time we come to the Lord's table, every time we see these two facts, when we read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, this is what it says, The Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed and took bread. Who, did, who, did, who betrayed Him? Judas betrayed Him? If you go read Romans eight thirty two, it says this, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up. For us all. Those, are, those words are the same words. One's translated betrayed, one's translated gave. Same word. Who did this? <laughs> Judas is responsible for what he did, and God used what Judas did to save men from their sins. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's wonderful to think how God works through things, through man's sin, to save him from his sin. Well, let me ask you one question before we look at the Lord's Supper. Come to the Lord's Supper. How do the benefits of Jesus' resurrection from the dead come to people? How, does, how do the benefits of this execution and this resurrection, how do they come to men and women who are captive to sin in space and in time? Well, he tells us in verse 11, by his knowledge, 
the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Let me read that again. By his knowledge. By whose knowledge? By Jesus' knowledge. His, by the righteous one's knowledge, my servant will justify the many. By the knowledge of him. What does this mean? The means by which you and I are brought out of our sin is a certain amount of knowledge. You can't put your faith, you can't be justified by faith unless your faith is in, not in faith. What's that story? Confidence in confidence and faith in faith. But we have to have faith in something, some person we know by the knowledge of Him. And guess who the teacher is? Jesus is the teacher. By the knowledge of Him, we have to, we can only be justified by faith, by faith in somebody we know. What do we need to know? Well, we don't have to know everything. I like it when we do the new members class. We don't have to know everything. <laughs> but we have to know some things. We need to know about a person who was executed. And we need to know that this person was wrong and voluntarily accepted the wrong done to him. And it was our wrong that he accepted. And he was cut off for our wrong. We need to know this. We need to know that he was buried and he received a king's burial because he didn't do anything wrong. The just went into the, gra- into the grave for the unjust so that we could be raised up with him and we could be saved by him. These are the things we have to know. We can't. We've had some great conversations lately. You guys know that Evan had his defense this past week and we've had these conversations. You can't be saved without knowing some stuff, right? You got to know some stuff. You got to know who Jesus is. You got to know about this execution. You have to know that he was raised from the dead for you. It's got to be about you knowing this. One, one person wrote this. I don't remember where I got this. I just know it's not mine. But one person said this God's greatest work is not the destruction of the wicked in hell, but God's greatest work is taking of the taking of my sin into himself. And giving love to me in return. Taking all the wrongs, taking all the transgressions, taking all the bentness of my life, and turning right around and giving me love in the place of what I deserve. You and I, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. And now we are to be slaves to this resurrected Jesus Christ. We are the ones who are in His triumphal train. We're connected to the cross, if you want to say it, chained to the cross. Oh, man, you know, I just, but you know what? Here's the thing. Y'all, please burn this in your brain. The more connected, the more chained, the more shackled, the more arrested, the more imprisoned you are to Jesus Christ, the happier you'll be. I didn't say that. That's just how I said it. Because, you know, you shall know the truth who is Jesus and the truth who is Jesus will make you free. And what a great way to move to the Lord's Supper. You know, we come to the Lord's Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas was the same night God was giving His Son up for our sins. And on the same day that Jesus is, going to, is moving towards crucifixion, God is preparing to save us from our sins through that execution. And Jesus stands up in the resurrection and He says, here's an executed body. Think about that. Here's an executed person standing in front of you. Holes in my hands, holes in my feet, hole in my side. Here's an executed body standing in front of you. And what does he say? 
here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this bread and eat it. I want you to take this cup and drink it. It's my body and it's my blood for you. Now we're not obviously going to eat and drink his body and blood, but by, by, uh, by faith we are spiritually going to be fed at this table and Jesus is the one doing the feeding. And you and I, we come to this table and we're taught to put all our confidence in Him. This table is for every person who's put his confidence and his trust in this knowledge that Jesus gives us. You and I are to trust in Him alone. You and I come, if we, we come to the table as those who have confessed our faith in Christ and those who have been baptized and as those who are accountable to a session of elders who keep watch over our souls. If you don't know what we're doing today, I'm just going to ask you to let the trays pass beside you. And I'm going to ask for you to consider the execution and consider the resurrection and consider that this person that is feeding us today with the bread and the wine, he's present to feed you with his death and resurrection for you. First things first. I always like to say that. First things first. What's the first thing we do? Well, first we have to receive Christ. And then we can sit with Christ. So first, think about receiving Him, taking hold of the things we've preached today so that we can sit together in the future. The Apostle tells us to examine our hearts before we eat. And so I'm just going to ask you to examine your heart. Examine your obedience. Examine your faith. Examine your repentance. And when you're done, put all your confidence in Christ. Put all your confidence in His righteousness and come and sit and come and eat with His people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this message and for Your Word. We thank You for a Jesus who understood what we needed and we praise You for reconciling us through the great plan that You and Your Son worked out. Father, we praise You that He was broken for us and blood was poured out for us and that in this meal we have a Jesus who is serving us a body already executed and raised from the dead marked marked by death and yet stands alive to feed us and father we pray that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use we pray father that we would eat and drink from the kingdom from from Jesus himself that we would be strengthened internally in our spirits. And Father, that as we leave this place, we would be ready to serve you. Help us now as we eat and drink together to glorify you and to love one another. We, praise, we pray this in Jesus' name.